cryptology, cops hacking back, Apple updates, and card counting. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today? I'm very well, thank you, Douglas. And I'm very excitedly looking forward to the card counting bit. Not least because it's not just about counting, it's also about card shuffling. All right, very good. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, in our tech history segment, we'll speak about something that is uh, was not random. It was very calculated. This week, on October 25th, 2001, Windows XP was released to retail. It was built upon the Windows NT operating system. XP replaced both 2000 and Windows Millennium Edition as XP Professional Edition and XP Home Edition, respectively. XP Home was the first consumer version of Windows to not be based on MS-DOS or the Windows 95 kernel. And uh, on a personal note, I loved it! I may just be remembering simpler times. I don't know if it was actually uh, as good as I remember it, but I remember it being better than uh, what we had before. I agree with that. I think there are some rose-tinted spectacles you Mm -hmm. may be wearing there, Doug, but... I would have to agree that it was an improvement. Let us talk a bit about comeuppance, specifically comeuppance for unwanted facial recognition in France. Indeed, regular listeners will know that we have spoken about a company called Clearview AI many times, because I think it's fair to say that this company is controversial. The French regulator very helpfully publishes its rulings, or has published at least its Clearview rulings, in both French and in English. And basically, here's how they describe it. Clearview AI collects photographs from many websites, including social media. It collects all the photos that are directly accessible on those networks. Thus, the company has collected over 20 billion images worldwide. Thanks to this collection, the company markets access to its image database in the form of a search engine in which a person can be found using a photograph. The company offers this service to law enforcement authorities. And the French regulator's objection, which was echoed last year by at least the UK and the Australian regulator as well, is we consider this unlawful in our country. You can't go scraping people's images for this commercial purpose without their consent. And you're also not complying with GDPR rules, data destruction rules making it easy for them to contact you and say, I want to opt out. So firstly, it should be opt-in if you want to run this. And having collected the stuff, you should not be hanging on to it even after they want to make sure that their data is removed. And the issue in France, Doug, is that last December, the regulator said, sorry, you can't do this. Stop scraping data and get rid of what you've got on everybody in France. Thank you very much. Apparently, according to the regulator, Clearview AI just didn't seem to want to comply. Uh So they've now come back and said, you don't seem to want to listen. You don't seem to understand that this is the law. Now, the same thing applies, but you also have to pay 20 million euros. Thanks for coming. And we've got some comments brewing on the article. We'd love to hear what you think. You can comment anonymously. Uh, Specifically, the questions we've put forth are, is Clearview AI really providing a beneficial and socially acceptable service to law enforcement? Or is it casually trampling on our privacy by collecting biometric data unlawfully and commercializing it for investigative tracking purposes without consent? 
All right. Uh, let us stick to this theme of comeuppance and talk about a bit of comeuppance for the deadbolt criminals. This is an interesting story involving law enforcement and hacking back. Hats off to the cops for doing this, even though, as, as we'll explain, it was sort of a one-off thing. Regular listeners will remember Deadbolt. It's come up a couple of times before. That is the ransomware gang who basically find your network-attached storage server if you're a home user or a small business. And if it isn't patched against a vulnerability they know how to exploit, they'll come in and they just scramble your NAS box. They figured that's where all your backups are. That's where all your big files are. That's where all your important stuff is. Let's not worry about having to write malware for Windows and malware for Mac and worrying about what version you've got. We'll just go straight in, scramble your files, and then say, pay us $600. That's the current going rate. 0.03 bitcoins, if you don't mind. So they're taking that consumer-oriented approach of trying to hit lots of people and asking for a somewhat affordable amount each time. And I guess if everything you've got is backed up on there, then you might feel, you know what, $600, it's a lot of money, but I can just about afford it, I'll pay up. And to simplify matters, and we've grudgingly said this is a clever part, if you like, of this particular ransomware, basically what you do is you tell the crooks you're interested by sending them a message via the Bitcoin blockchain. Basically, you pay them the money to a specified, unique-to-you Bitcoin address. When they get the payment message, they send back a payment of $0 that includes a comment that is the decryption key. So that's the only interaction they need with you. They don't need to use email. They don't have to run any dark web servers. However, the Dutch cops figured they had made a protocol-related blunder. As soon as your transaction hit the Bitcoin ecosystem looking for someone to mine it, their script would send the decryption key. And it turns out that although you cannot double-spend Bitcoins, otherwise the system would fall apart, you can put in two transactions at the same time, one with a high transaction fee and one with a very low or a zero transaction fee, and guess which one the Bitcoin miners and ultimately the Bitcoin blockchain will accept. <laughs> and that's what the cops did. Very clever. A, I like it. They'd stick in a payment with zero transaction fee, which is could take days to get processed. And then as soon as they got the decryption key back from the crooks, they had, I think, 155 users that they sort of clubbed together. As soon as they got the decryption key back, they did a double spend transaction. They said, oh, we want to spend the same Bitcoin again but this time we're going to pay it back to ourselves. And now we'll offer a sensible transaction fee. So that transaction was the one that ultimately actually got confirmed and locked into the blockchain, and the other one just got ignored and thrown away. <laughs> As always, shouldn't laugh. So basically, <laughs> the crooks paid out too soon. And I guess it's not treachery if you're law enforcement and you're doing it in a legally warranted way. It's basically a trap, and the crooks walked into it. As I mentioned at the beginning, it can only work once because, of course, the crooks figured, oh dear, we shouldn't do it that way. Let's change the protocol. Let's wait for the transaction to be confirmed onto the blockchain first. And then once we know that nobody can come along with a transaction that will trump it later, only then will we send out the decryption key. But the crooks did get flat-footed to the tune of 155 decryption keys from victims in 13 different countries who called on the Dutch police for help. So, chapeau, as they say. That's great. That's two positive stories in a row. And let's keep the uh, positive vibes rolling with this next story. It's about women in cryptology 
They have been honored by the U.S. Postal Service, who is celebrating the World War II code breakers. Tell us all about this. This is a very interesting story, Paul. Yes, it was one of those nice things to write about on Naked Security. Women in Cryptology, United States Postal Service celebrates World War II code breakers. Now, we've covered Bletchley Park code breaking, which is the UK's cryptographic efforts during the Second World War, mainly to try and crack Nazi ciphers such as the well-known Enigma machine. However, as you can imagine, the US faced a huge problem from the Pacific theatre of war, trying to deal with Japanese ciphers, and in particular, one cipher known as Purple, which, unlike the Nazis' Enigma, was not a commercial device that could be bought. It was actually a homegrown machine that came out of the military based on telephone switching relays, which, if you think about it, are kind of like base 10 switches. So in the same way that Bletchley Park in the UK secretly employed more than 10,000 people, I didn't realise this, but it turned out that there were well over 10,000 women recruited into cryptology, cryptographic cracking in the US to try and deal with Japanese ciphers during the war. And by all accounts, they were extremely successful. There was a cryptographic breakthrough made in the early 1940s by one of the US cryptologists called Genevieve Hrotian. And apparently this led to spectacular successes in reading Japanese secrets. And I'll just quote from the US Postal Service from their stamp series. They deciphered Japanese fleet communications, helped prevent German U-boats from sinking vital cargo ships, and worked to break the encryption systems that revealed Japanese shipping routes and diplomatic messages. You can imagine that gives you very, very, very usable intelligence indeed that you have to assume helped to shorten the war. And fortunately, even though the Japanese had been warned, apparently by the Nazis, that their cipher was either breakable or had already been broken, they refused to believe it and they carried on using purple throughout the war. And the women cryptologists of the time definitely made hay secretly while the sun shone. Unfortunately, just as happened in the UK with all the wartime heroes, again, most of them women at Bletchley Park, after the war, they were sworn to secrecy. So it was many decades until they got any recognition at all, let alone what you might call the hero's welcome that they essentially deserved when peace broke out in 1945. Wow, that is a cool story. And uh, unfortunate that it took that long to get the recognition, but uh, great that they finally got it. And uh, I urge anyone who's listening to this to head over to the site to read that. It's called Women in Cryptology. USPS celebrates World War II code breakers. Very good piece. By the way, Doug, on the stamp series that you can buy, the commemorative series, you know, you get the stamps on a full sheet uh, uh, yes. around the stamps. The USPS has actually put a little cryptographic puzzle, which we've repeated in the article. It is not as difficult as Enigma or Purple, so you can actually do it fairly easily with pen and paper. But it's a good bit of commemorative fun. So come on over and have a try if you like. We've also put a link to an article that we wrote a couple of years ago about what 2000 years of cryptography can teach us in which you'll find hints that will help you solve the USPS cryptographic puzzle. Good bit of fun to go with your commemoration. All right, so let's stick with uh, randomness and cryptography a little bit and uh, ask a question that maybe some have wondered before. How random are those automatic card shufflers you might see at a casino? Yes, another fascinating story. 
that I picked up thanks to cryptography guru Bruce Schneier, who wrote about it on his own blog, and he entitled his article On the Randomness of Automatic Card Shufflers. The paper we're talking about goes back, I think, to 2013, and the work that was done, I think, goes back to the early 2000s. But what fascinated me about the story and made me want to share it is that it has incredible teachable moments for people who are currently involved in programming, whether or not in the field of cryptography, and even more importantly, in testing and quality assurance. Because unlike the Japanese who refuse to believe that their purple cipher might not be working properly, this is a story about a company that made automatic card shuffling machines, but figured, are they really good enough, or could someone actually figure out how they work and get an advantage from the fact that they aren't random enough? And so they went out of their way to hire a trio of mathematicians from California, one of whom is also an accomplished magician, <laughs> and said, we built this machine. We think it's random enough with one shuffle of the cards. And their own engineers had gone out of their way to devise tests that they thought would show whether the machine was random enough for card shuffling purposes. But they wanted a second opinion. And so they actually went out and got one and these mathematicians looked at how the machine worked and were able to come up, believe it or not, with what's known as a closed formula. In other words, they analysed it completely, how the thing would behave, and therefore what statistical inferences they could make from how the cards would come out. And they discovered that although the shuffled cards would pass a significant battery of good randomness tests, there were still sufficiently many unbroken sequences in the cards after they'd been shuffled that allowed them to predict the next card twice as well as chance. And they were able to show the reasoning by which they were able to come up with that mental algorithm for guessing the next card twice as well as they should. So not only did they do it reliably and repeatably, they actually had the mathematics to show formulaically why that was the case. And the story is perhaps most famous for the earthy but entirely appropriate response from the president of the company that hired them. And he is supposed to have said, we are not pleased with your conclusions, but we believe them. And that is what we hired you for. In other words, saying, I didn't pay to be made happy. I paid to find out the facts and to act upon them. And if only more people did that when it came to devising tests for their software, because it's easy to create a set of tests that your product will pass and where if it fails, you know something has definitely gone wrong. But it's surprisingly difficult to come up with a set of tests that it is worth your product passing. And that is what this company did by hiring in the mathematicians to look into how the card shuffling machine worked. Quite a lot of life lessons in there, Doug. It's a fun story and uh, very interesting. Now, every week we generally talk about some sort of Apple update, but not this week. No, no. This week we've got for you an Apple mega update. Unfortunately, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, it covers a zero day currently being actively exploited, which as always smells of jailbreak slash complete spyware takeover. And as always and perhaps understandably, 
Apple is very cagey about exactly what the zero D is, what it's being used for, and just as interestingly, who's using it. So if you've got an iPhone or an iPad, this is definitely one for you. And confusingly, Doug, uh, I better explain this because it actually wasn't obvious at first. And thanks to some reader help, thanks Stefan from Belgium, who's been sending me screenshots and explaining exactly what happened to him when he updated his iPad. The update for iPhones and iPads said, hey, you've got iOS 16.1 and iPad OS 16 because iPad OS version 16 was delayed. And that's what the security bulletin says. And when you install the update, the basic about screen just says iPad OS 16. But if you zoom into the big version screen, then both versions actually come out as iOS slash iPadOS 16.1. So that's the upgrade to version 16 plus this vital zero-day fix. So that's the hard and confusing part. The rest is just that there are lots of fixes for other platforms as well, except that because Ventura came out, macOS 13, with 112 CV numbered patches, Though for most people, they won't have had the beta, so this will be upgrade and update at the same time. Because macOS 13 came out, that leaves macOS 10 Catalina three versions behind. And it does indeed look as though Apple is only now supporting previous and pre-previous. So there are updates for Big Sur and Monterey. That's macOS 11 and macOS 12. But Catalina is notoriously absent, Doug. And as annoyingly as always, what we cannot tell you, does that mean it simply was immune to all these fixes? Does that mean it actually needs at least some of the fixes, they just haven't come out yet? Or does that mean it's fallen off the edge of the world and you will never get an update again, whether it needs one or not? We don't know. If I feel winded and I didn't even do any of the heavy lifting in that uh, story. So thank you for that. That's a lot. <laughs> and to you unpack. don't even have an iPhone. <laughs> exactly. I got an iPad. Now I got to I gotta go make sure I get it up. Oh, do you? Yeah, and that, that yeah. Lead, leads us into our reader question of the day. And uh, the Apple story, an anonymous commenter asks, will the 15.7 update for iPads resolve this, or do I have to update to 16? I am waiting until the minor nuisance bugs in 16 are resolved before updating. That's the second level of confusion, if you like, caused by this. Now, my understanding is when iPad OS 15.7 came out, that was exactly the same time as iOS 15.7. And it was, what, just over a month ago, I think. So that's an old-time security update. And so what we now don't know is, is there an iOS slash iPadOS 15.7.1 still in the wings that hasn't come out yet, fixing security holes that do exist in the previous version of operating systems for those platforms? Or is your update path for security updates for iOS and iPadOS, now to go down the version 16 route. And I just don't know, and I don't know how you tell. So it's looking as though, and I'm sorry if I sound confused, Doug, because I am, uh, it's looking as though the update and the upgrade path for users of iOS and iPadOS 15.7 is to shift to version flavor 16, and at this current time, that means 16.1. That would be my recommendation, because then at least you know you have the latest and greatest build with the latest and greatest security fixes. So that's that's the long answer. The short answer is, Doug, don't know. 
Clear as mud. Yeah. Well, perhaps not that clear. <laughs> if you leave mud long enough, yeah. eventually the, the bits settle to the bottom. Yeah. There's clear water on the top. <laughs> so maybe that's what you have to do. Wait and see or just bite the bullet and go for 16.1. They do make it easy, don't uh-huh. they? <laughs> All right. Well, we will keep an eye on that because that could uh, change a little bit between now and next time. Uh, thank you very much for sending that comment in, anonymous commenter. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.